From national news in D.C. to behind-the-scenes coverage of the Nebraska Capitol, this is your Capitol Connection. And now, bringing the Capitol to you, here's your host, Nate Graz. And welcome to the program. We are broadcasting today from the Nebraska Family Alliance Studio in Lincoln, just blocks away from our state capitol, talking about the biggest news in government, policy, and culture every week from a biblical perspective. And we have a really special show today. We will be joined shortly by a special guest, one of the leading constitutional law experts in the entire country from right here in Nebraska, Professor Rick Duncan will be with us on the program today. So we are going to talk about what is so special and important about our Constitution, but also the challenges and threats facing our Constitution as well, and what that means for Americans, and in particular, what it means for people of faith and what our response should be going forward. You know, there is a huge ongoing ideological battle in our country right now over our Constitution and what it says, what it doesn't say, what it should say, how it should be interpreted, and how or why it should be defended. So there is a lot to talk about. And I'm pleased to be joined now by constitutional law professor, First Amendment expert, and all things legal extraordinaire at the University of Nebraska College of Law, Professor Rick Duncan. Professor Duncan, we're thrilled to have you on the program today. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. Professor Duncan, so you have been teaching constitutional law at the Nebraska College of Law and traveling all across the country for decades, giving guest lectures and speeches about the Constitution. Why have you devoted your career to teaching the United States Constitution? Well, you know, I, it's funny. I think it started with Roe versus Wade. I, I was in law school when Roe versus Wade was decided. Roe versus Wade was decided in January of, uh, uh, of 1973, and I was a 1L in August of 1973. And, uh, you know, and the more and more that I thought about Roe, the more I thought that, uh, uh, that, that rather than commercial law, which is what I actually started in. I was a commercial lawyer and I taught Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code here for, for about 10 or 12 years. But I began to think that rather than focusing so much on commercial law, constitutional law was uh, uh, was much more important to uh, the well-being of, of our children and future generations. And so I made that switch. And, Professor, you know, it's interesting that uh, it was the Roe versus Wade decision that uh, kind of spurred you into uh, your career of teaching constitutional law. So let me start by by asking you, you know, it, it's so common today that, that we hear uh, those words that it, it, abortion is a constitutional right. And every time there is a Supreme Court vacancy, it really boils down to Roe versus Wade. And, you know, are, are you going to respect the precedent of Roe. So from from your perspective, I mean, how do you view that issue? How do you talk about that issue? What is the the response to, to that argument? Well, well, the Constitution is completely silent about abortion. There actually is a right to life in the Constitution, but, um, you know, it's not clear that it would apply to prenatal human beings, but the Constitution does protect the right to life, but it says absolutely nothing about abortion, reproductive privacy, sexual privacy. It is completely silent. So Roe versus Wade uh, is a completely judge-made doctrine uh, that, in my opinion, will never be settled. That I, I think what's happening, you mentioned the um, confirmation process, it has polluted 
the confirmation process because uh, the the issue is so divisive and it was decided not by the political process, not by the democratic process in the state legislatures and Congress, but by the judiciary. And so therefore, every time there's a judicial vacancy, the issue becomes what's your view on Roe versus Wade? What's your view on stare decisis? Um, Is Roe versus Wade an untouchable precedent or not? And of course, the judges are very smart now. Um, They don't answer those questions. They say things like, well, I can't respond to a question that might come before the court. Um, But I I think the Kavanaugh, um, the the debacle that was the the confirmation process for Justice Kavanaugh was totally a product of Roe versus Wade. And I think those who were attacking him have now admitted that that was the reason they went after him is they feared that he might be the fifth vote to overrule Roe. That's so interesting, and I appreciate you walking us through that thought process. And let me take it back to the 30,000-foot level. What is something or or one thing that you wish all Americans understood or or, or knew more about their own constitution? Well, I mean, it's a difficult question because— you know, uh, Americans kind of believe what they read about the Constitution. So if the newspapers report that abortion is a fundamental constitutional right, they tend to believe that. Um, so it's it's kind of it, I, I wish that Americans would have a, a clear understanding of of um, the rule rather than the rule of law, which is following the law. I like to refer to the law of rulers. And when the Supreme Court makes up a new constitutional right, whether it be uh, the abortion right or the right to same-sex marriage, um, that is not the rule of law. The Constitution says nothing about abortion. It says nothing about same-sex marriage. That is the law of rulers. That is the law of nine unelected lawyers. And, and I wish Americans would understand the difference between what the written Constitution says about an issue and what a five to four majority of the United States Supreme Court says about an issue. And, you know, there there have been some recent proposals to drastically alter our constitution that I think are starting to get more attention Mm -hmm. than they have previously, one of which is amending the constitution to abolish the electoral college. What are your thoughts on that proposal? Um, Well, that won't happen. You know, the, the problem with constitutional amendments, it's really very, very difficult to amend the constitution. And that is sometimes a good thing. And it's sometimes not so good. But what it takes to amend the Constitution is a two-thirds vote in the House of Representatives, a two-thirds vote in the Senate. And all that does is propose the amendment. And then that proposed amendment has to be ratified by three-fourths of state legislatures, which I think the number is 38 states, have to ratify the proposed amendment. Small states would be absolutely crazy to ratify a proposed amendment that would lead us to a national popular vote for the presidency, which would be dominated by California and New York. Uh, you, you hear that in 2016, Hillary Clinton won the so-called popular vote. There is not 
a national popular vote, but you know the media just count all the state votes up. And you hear that people say that Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote by three million votes. Well, she won California by four million, and she won New York by two million. If you just discount those two, that means Donald Trump won the other forty-eight states by three million votes. Um, and the whole reason for the Electoral College and the and what what's called the Great Compromise of the Constitution was to protect the smaller states from being dominated by the larger states. Professor Duncan, yeah, you know, one of the other uh, proposals uh, that would amend our Constitution that uh, some candidates for, for president are actually campaigning on now is that they would like to uh, so-called pack the Supreme Court with more mm-hmm. justices. Isn't that a sign of just more uh, attempts to politicize uh, the judicial branch of government. I mean, what do you think would happen if if that were uh, right. to seriously be considered or to amend the Constitution to allow more justices on the U.S. Right. Supreme Court? Well, I think progressives have never um, have never accepted the results of 2016. Um, they think that Justice Gorsuch's seat was seen on the court was stolen from Justice from Judge Garland, who they believe should have been a justice. Um, they think that somehow Ronald, uh, that Donald Trump is not a legitimate president. Um, and, and so if they ever come to power again, I think there's almost, you know, if they get the House and the Senate and the presidency, I think there's almost no limit on what they might do. I think, you know, they don't like the Senate because every state has equal representation in the United States Senate. Wyoming gets two senators. California gets two senators, even though California has roughly 70 times the population. Of um, or 35 times the population of Wyoming, um, and you know, and so I th- I think if they ever get the House, the Senate, and the presidency, there's no limit to what they might do, and they may well uh, pack the Supreme Court. They may well pass legislation increasing the number of Supreme Court justices. That will change the meaning of the Constitution. They'll be putting people on there who are so-called living constitutionalists, who believe that everything they think is good is constitutionally required and everything they think is bad is constitutionally forbidden. Um, But also the prospect of maybe packing the court, increasing the size of the court so they can get those immediate uh, progressive justices to begin constitutionalizing heaven knows what. Certainly extending Roe versus Wade, certainly turning their back on free speech uh, and uh, and religious liberty, um, and uh, Lord knows what else. So, Professor Duncan, could you you give us a a, a brief synopsis of uh, the the, the debate or the key differences uh, between, you know, an an understanding of the Constitution known as originalism Mm -hmm. versus a, a living Constitution and just how significant those differences are between those two different interpretations? Well, originalists like Justice Thomas, like Justice Gorsuch, um, maybe like Justice Alito, they believe that the Constitution um, means what it says and means what it always meant. That, In other words, they look to the original public meaning of the text of the Constitution. And, you know, the Constitution says what it says, and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. You give effect to what it says, and you don't make up additional things that it doesn't say. Living constitutionalists believe, well, the Constitution is 200-plus years old. Um, It's, you know, it needs to change to keep track of the needs, uh, to keep up with the needs of a changing society. 
And so we, the living constitutionalist judges, should create new meaning. We should find new constitutional rights, like the right to abortion, like the right to same-sex marriage. If only the founders had anticipated the world we live in, this is what they would have done. Well, the problem with that is twofold. One is the Constitution can't be changed. If the Constitution is out of date, then there's an amendment process where we can amend the Constitution to deal with new problems of a constitutional dimension. Uh, But the second thing is the original Constitution did indeed create a system or a process for change to keep up with changing circumstances. And that is the process of ordinary democratic legislation in Congress within the enumerated powers of Congress and in the 50 states within the powers of the state legislatures. So if California thinks the world has changed and we need same sex marriage. California can enact same-sex marriage, but if Nebraska thinks, no, I think the marriage that we've always understood is working pretty well for us, then Nebraska could stick with the original model. And that's the beauty of federalism in a nation as divided as ours. Federalism allows different um, different states with different values to go in different directions. I sometimes jokingly refer to federalism as 50 shades of federalism. <laughs> You can have, you know, you can have a legislation that works for California, but maybe legislation that works in California doesn't work in Wyoming or Nebraska or North Dakota. And so the people of Nebraska can find a Nebraska consensus. The people of New York can find a New York consensus and the people of California can find a California census. And it enables us to live together in peace. We don't have to impose our views on them and they don't impose their views on us. Sometimes I refer to it as the peace of federalism, different strokes for different folks. Well, I think that's exactly right. That, that's the beauty of federalism uh, and, the, and the system of, of governance that our founders gave us. And of course, you teach constitutional law. What are you, what are you teaching or honing in on uh, on day one of your constitutional law class? Well, I mean, we start, you know, we start with so-called judicial review in Marbury versus Madison and, the, you know, the Supreme Court basically <laughs> uh, finding the power of judicial review, finding the power to strike down an unconstitutional act of Congress or of the state. So it, it kind of starts with an old, you know, 200 and whatever, 200 plus year old case. Um, but, you know, it, it, but I, I what I try to do is walk them through um, the whole the separation of powers and and the enumerated powers of Congress. This is what a lot of ordinary Americans don't understand, is that the powers of Congress are supposed to be strictly enumerated. Congress has the powers that the Constitution enumerates and gives Congress, but all other powers are supposed to reside with the states. And over the course of a couple hundred years of judicial review, Congress has usurped more power and the court has let them get away with it. And so we see now today that a federal government that was supposed to be small and focused on a a few clearly national issues you know, is is basically legislating and regulating every aspect of our lives. That was never intended. And I try to make sure that before my students walk away from class, they understand that we don't have the same system of government that the founders created, even though the Constitution hasn't been amended. It's been judicially altered. Well, I think that's that's really something for all Americans uh, to, to need to understand. Uh, so, Professor Duncan, let, let me ask you this. What in your perspective, is currently 
the greatest threat to our Constitution, and how should we be responding? Well, I've been spending a lot of my time lately working on uh, free speech issues and religious liberty issues. And again, this is another one that's on the ballot in 2020. There's something that the the Democrats in the House um, passed this year. It did not pass the Congress because the Senate uh, didn't give it a vote. But it's something called the Equality Act. And again, this is one of those issues where the basically progressives believe that the values of the sexual revolution are the most fundamental values in our society. And they should be imposed on everyone. So if you're a Catholic hospital, you have no business um, refusing to do abortions. You have to provide abortion services and transgender transition services to your patients, even if it conflicts with the uh, the religious conscience of of the uh, uh, of the hospital ministry or of the individual doctors and nurses. If you are an adoption agency, a a, a Christian adoption agency, how dare you base your understanding of marriage on the Bible's teachings about marriage? You are required to um, place children with same-sex families, even if you believe that that's not in the best interest of children. If you are a wedding vendor. Uh, a videographer or a wedding singer or a cake artist, then not only, you know, do same-sex couples have a right to marry under under the Constitution as interpreted by the court, but they have a right to demand that you provide them with your artistic services. So I think the most important issues uh, facing us right now, of course, Roe versus Wade and uh, eventually, hopefully getting Roe overruled. But in terms of just ordinary people of faith going about their lives, I think it's the religious freedom and, and free speech issues. In the NIFLA case, that was the case where California tried to impose on, on crisis pregnancy centers were required to provide information about how women could get free abortions. Well, the court struck that law down. They said that was an unconstitutional act of compelled speech, that the government has no business requiring uh, religious ministries, or for that matter, any ministries, to engage in speech that is contrary to their conscience. But that was a five to four vote. And indeed, if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, um, it would have been five for the other way. Garland would have replaced Gorsuch, and that case would almost certainly have come out the other way. So, you know, all of these issues are on the ballot. We don't think about the, the court when we have an election. We compare the two candidates. But because there are such stark differences between the jurisprudence of, of originalists, of conservatives and originalists, and the jurisprudence of progressives, every time you go to the polls, uh, in national elections, whether it be for the Senate or for the presidency, you're voting for one vision of the Constitution or the other. And, you know, that that is scary. There, There is certainly so much at stake right now in our country, and you have such a strong interest and, and passion for writing and speaking about federalism, religious freedom, and the right to life, all things we love and are passionate about at Nebraska Family Alliance. What is the legacy that you hope to leave through all of your teachings and writings about the Constitution? Well, you know, uh, I think I think uh, Justice Scalia summed it up before and shortly before he died, he was asked about his legacy. And he said, you know, I really don't worry about that much. He said, when I die, I'll either be supremely unhappy or supremely happy. And I won't really give a darn about my legacy. Um, 
uh, I mean, he went on to say that 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 the, the real important thing was not so much his articles, but rather his impact on on law students. But what he meant by that was, I'll either be in heaven, in which case, you know, I won't be beyond the problems of this world, or I'll wake up and I'll find that I'm in the other place, and I'll be supremely unhappy. But you know, he basically he said he wasn't too worried about it. But on other occasions, he did talk about the impact he was able to have either as a teacher or even writing his dissents. He, you know, when, when people asked him, why do you write your dissents so, with such powerful language? And he said, well, I, I, I use that language because I want to force casebook editors to put my dissents in their casebooks so that the next generation of law students will read them and maybe some of them will be persuaded by the ideas. So at the end of the run, and, and at the end of the day, the only thing that that, you know, the legacy of a law professor is the students that uh, over 40 years, in my case, that you've had an opportunity to teach. And I just hope that some of these ideas will, you know, will, will stay alive in, in law students that I've taught. Well, I'm sure that they will. Uh, and there, there's a great, a great eternal truth in what you just shared. So I, I appreciate that. And Professor Duncan, as always, your expertise and insight is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for giving us your time today and a crash course on the Constitution. We hope to have you back again soon. It's my pleasure, and thank you very much. And I, I apologize for my voice. I've got a pretty, uh, I just got back from vacation, and I think I brought a cold back <laughs> with me. It's, it's wonderful. We're, we're glad to have you and uh, hopefully look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay. For more information on how you can help defend liberty, religious freedom, and the right to life, visit our website, NebraskaFamilyAlliance.org. Special thanks again to our guest today, Professor Rick Duncan. I'm your host, Nate Graz, Policy Director for the Nebraska Family Alliance, hoping you'll join us again next week. Thanks for listening to your Capital Connections.